0: When the gals decide to get out of Miami, they have quite the adventure awaiting them in the islands. Sophia can't be worried about not going. She's got a romantic adventure of her own to worry about. All of the excitement leaves us wondering, will the girls survive being shipwrecked? Will Sophia make a love connection? Will somebody punch Winston Third in the face All of that and actual survival tips from expert Tom Brown Third in today's episode, Vacation. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go.
1: No, you'll always
0: be my
1: sister.
0: It's a beautiful sunny day as we zoom in on the house. Inside we find a somewhat frantic Dorothy in a multi-blue teal colored blazer with matching blue pants and a white shirt. She's looking quite sharp actually. Behind her comes a scurrying Sophia in khakis, a floral blouse, and a light pink cardigan. With a suitcase in her hand and many demands of her mother, including not taking the car out on a joyride or sneaking into old uncle's medicine cabinet, it's clear Dorothy is headed out on a vacation while Sophia is staying home, a Sophia that, upon hearing all of the demands by her protective daughter, implies she must be Gidget to not be able to do any of the fun stuff. We've talked about Gidget before, the goody two-shoes from the film series in the 60s starring Sandra Dee. She would never use a car or alcohol without permission. Entering the living room with the same voice of stress and time management failure we have all encountered when leaving for a trip is Rose, giving us some business casual jungle cruise with a linen pant and blazer combo paired with a white and light gray vertically striped shirt and belt. The belt is across the shirt but under the blazer, kind of like what we all did in the early 2000s, but this actually looks cute. As Rose rattles off her final checklist with Dorothy, medicines for seasickness, food sickness, and ear pressure relief, Dorothy assures her they're all set. Although, by the time Rose gets around to asking if the cab has been called, Dorothy has a change of plans. Two cabs will be arriving, one for her and Blanche, and one for Rose because she's being so obnoxious. As a sick kid, I approve of the Dramamine. It is usually used for seasickness, but my parents would give it to me when we were making one of our many car trips to LA or Vegas to go see the grandparents. I had no problem taking a Benadryl and sleeping through half the trip. In fact, it kind of Pavlovianly trained me to sleep when I'm a passenger, so lucky drivers. As far as chewing gum when you're flying, it does actually help to manage the atmospheric pressures in the ear. According to travelandleisure.com, chewing opens up the eustachian tube in our ear and brings in the new pressure level, evening out the pressure in our inner ear. For Dorothy, the only concern she has surrounding her Caribbean island vacation is that she'll have tan lines. For Rose, it's that they're going out of the country, and with everything going on in the Middle East right now, is that the best idea? If the ladies were traveling to the Middle East in 1986, they would have been right to have some concern, depending on where they were going. In that year alone, there was the Iran-Iraq War, which went on from 1980 to 1988, the South Yemen Civil War, the conscription riot in Egypt, and the Damascus bombings in Syria. It's probably a good thing they were just headed to an island. Slowly making her way to the door is Blanche, who packs like my mother. Also in a combo, our purple Princess Blanche has a fabulous purple and gold flowy pant and long blazer-like top in a banana leaf pattern accompanied with a long purple scarf, a purse, and undershirt of the same color. With her five or six bags, I'm not exaggerating about my own mom. Going to Vegas for weeks on end when we were kids? Yeah, of course you need to bring everything we might need for summer fun and family dinners out. But when you're going to the Hard Rock Hotel for one night of fun times, do you really need four bags? Let me tell you, I do not think she has recovered yet from the great airline baggage limitations of 2009. For Blanche, the luggage is simply full of all the things she'll need to look her absolute best the entire trip. Never missing an opportunity to shade someone, Sophia claims that in order for Blanche to look her best, she will have to have packed a tight butt. And she could have. There's always the option of wearing fake booty underwear. I know this not only as a researcher, but as a customer. I had literally no butt for the first 35 years of my life, and there were times when we went out that I would wear the fake butt underwear that my mother had purchased for me from a made-for-TV ad, and I loved them. I was wearing them the first time I met my dear friend Amber, and she will never forget it. My dog then ate them, and I gained weight in my butt, so there's that story.
2: Which dog ate? Which dog ate your butt?
0: Hello, Coco. <laughs> Hi.
2: Hello, Alicia. Which dog ate your fake butt? Uh,
0: my late dog buddy. He uh, wasn't a huge chewer, but every once in a while he would uh, get his get his paws on something, and uh, maybe the the chunks of padding felt like a stuffed animal or something, and he
2: went at it. Did you try to reassemble it, and it just looked wrong? It just
0: wasn't going to work. Just a lumpy yeah. butt. Yeah,
2: it wasn't good. Beanbag butt.
0: <laughs> That's what they called me.
2: Uh, They just called me Beanbutt because of all my toots.
0: Ah! (laughs) Finally, an uncredited cabbie arrives to take them to the airport. As he grabs their luggage, a confused Rose asks where her second cab is. Poor stupid Rose. No, she's not expected to actually run behind the cab, but just ride in the first one altogether. A bit of a plot whoopsie here, the ladies seem to have no issue hopping on a plane to an island, and it was probably a really small plane too, but as we learn in the future, at least one of the girls has a nearly paralyzing fear of flying. It must have developed later in life. Before their farewells, Dorothy and Rose try to convince Sophia to change her mind about not going on the trip, Rose even whipping out the resort's brochure to persuade her to join but she's only interested in joking about the people in the pictures. She not only would love some alone time in the house, but she has a secret plan for her secret crush. Coco, the last year hasn't really allowed for a lot of alone time. When you do get that, what is your go-to alone time activity? And please remember, this is a family show.
2: This past year has been pretty enjoyable because I've gotten back into reading books, novels, and I knocked a bunch of Stephen King books off of my list of you things did. I You've wanted to. You have been reading
0: to. constantly.
2: And so that's been nice. But also I find a lot of joy and uh, relaxation to be found in video games. I play my PlayStation. I play my Switch. And I don't apologize for it. And it's not a waste <laughs> of time because it's helpful to me
0: it is you answer so many jeopardy questions and then you go learn that on this video game i
2: mean it's insane how many things yeah (laughs) if if you guys want a a fun like greek mythology lesson play hades on nintendo switch you'll learn it all pound those names into your skull you'll never forget them
0: (laughs) do you have anything that because i don't mind if you play video games and you know i usually watch and stuff do you have anything that you're like if i was totally alone i'd want to you know for sophia it's vacuuming in her underwear Or vacuuming naked, actually.
2: No, I don't think there's anything I really do alone. I might eat like an animal. (laughs) I think that would be probably one thing. And I'd probably sing a lot. I'd be probably pretty loud, and I'd probably talk to myself a lot. You should sing.
0: You should sing more. Sing out loud all the time. You've got it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe not everything you say.
2: (laughs) My feelings are hurt. My eyes, they're gonna squirt. Oh. I didn't like that. With tears from those Uh, words that hurt.
0: Wait, why did that hurt?
2: You said I shouldn't sing all the time. Did you hear how all that stuff rhymed?
0: Still, it still is. My God.
2: Having a pretty good time. (laughs)
0: The second the door is closed, Sophia scuttles across the floor to the forbidden corner of the living room, grabbing the attention of the gardener, Mr. Mitsumo. At first, she simply thanks him for his hard work. She's appreciated not having to step on snails to get the mail. Get it? Snail mail.
2: This moment in the show scared me so much that we had to go back and watch it again. (laughs) We did. As they're going to the front door, you can see what turns out to be Mr. Mitsumo pass by the window in profile with something in his hand, I think. And it looks scary.
0: Yeah, they really like so rarely do anything back there that having any movement is like, wait, what's happening? And at first you were like, was that an accident? Like, you know, a a, pro- a producer or something. And then...
2: <laughs> it reminded me of the... Everyone knows the three men and a baby ghost.
0: The urban legend.
2: Of and, three men and a baby. And what is it really? It's like a cutout or something? Yeah.
0: So it's uh the urban legend is that someone hung themselves on the set, I believe. Or am I missing mixing that up with the Wizard of Oz?
2: I think that's Wizard of Oz, which I, ha- I remember seeing when I was a kid, seeing that whatever that is in the background of that scene.
0: Oh, I revisited it when I was older and I was like, oh, that's spooky.
2: It's something back there. It looks like someone is hanging.
0: It's it's. So, okay. so in Wizard of Oz, there is a shadow. I don't remember which part it is. And uh, there's a shadow that was then everyone was like, oh, my gosh, one of the uh, munchkin actors, one of the little people took their life and they're swaying in a tree. Well, then someone was like, no, we had all these crazy animals on set and it's actually like a huge bird and it's just lifting its neck. So if you watch it as that, you're like, oh, that is what that is.
2: Oh, interesting. I did not know that.
0: Yeah, and then Three Minute Baby—hold on, let me pull this up real quick.
2: I remember everyone saying it was like a, a, uh, a ghost of a child.
0: Oh, yeah. In Three Minute and a Baby, there's a point where he's— Ted Danson's like walking by with the mom and, and the baby, and they're all like, oh, yay. And back behind the curtains, it looks like there's a person looking in the window, but they're up in a tower. And then later, it's like it's a Ted Danson cutout. It's it's of him. So there's not actually okay. a ghost. But, yeah, same, same feeling as Mr. Mitsumo— Wandering around because you don't know. You were like, who's back there? I'm like, just give it a second. They'll explain.
2: Yeah, I thought I thought there was I thought I was seeing something. I thought that something was making it look that way. But yeah, boy, when you see that it's a, a person, it really I was like, look out. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? It was
0: the Halloween episode. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mitsumo nods in understanding before attempting to leave so he can get back to work. Still having unfinished business with him, Sophia points out that one, her roommates are gone, and two, the two of them are always flirting through the window at each other and they should do something about it over a glass of the orange drink flavor mix, Tang. With Mr. Mitsumo's limited English, he simply responds with an, oh, Tang. But that wasn't the important part of what Sophia was saying, so she tries again. She quite bluntly says, hey, we like each other, let's hang out but quickly realizes he still isn't understanding her. Walking away to go sit on the couch, Sophia doesn't realize she's being followed until Mr. Mitsumo taps her on the shoulder, scaring her but assuring her he can understand some of what she's saying. With delighted smiles, they both sit on the couch. In a career spanning nearly 60 years and over 200 roles, Toshiro Mitsumo is played by Kung Fu TV star Key Luke. He started out in the art department before his first roles in the 30s. That led to being cast as the number one son, Lee, in the Charlie Chan series of films throughout the 1930s. Key's popularity led to him being a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild, being the first Asian American to be signed to MGM, RKO, and Universal, allowing him to become one of the most prevalent Asian actors in cinema history. Besides his groundbreaking achievements, Key Luke also had multiple appearances on dozens of shows and movies, like the original Cato and the Green Hornet, Gunsmoke, General Hospital, Perry Mason, Andy Griffith, Dragnet, Star Trek, Hawaii 5 The FBI, MASH, Magnum P.I., Miami Vice, the Sidekicks TV series, Beauty and the Beast series, Friday the 13th series, and Gremlins 1 and 2. He was also known for his voice work in shows like the original Johnny Quest, The Smurfs, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Spider-Man, Scooby-Doo, and the original Brack on the original Space Fire,
1: sleep, missile! It's sleeping, (laughs) gas! Send out an (laughs) SOS!
0: Ooh, a new and exotic location. A resort on an island. As we wait patiently in the girls' room, Rose opens the door, followed by Dorothy and Blanche. Ah, the reveal of a hotel room door opening. Nothing more exciting and scary. Unfortunately for the girls, they've landed on the scary side. Not looking like the multiple-bed suite with beautiful ocean views they thought they were getting in the brochure, the ladies find themselves in a room that, sure, I could go on and on about the multi-sized and colored pillows on the white iron bed with what appears to be a rug as a comforter. I could point out the plain wall calendar on the gray walls with off-peach trim. I could point out the bamboo daybed seat or the hideous funeral home curtains or the fact that it's about the size of Sophia's bedroom. But I don't need to do all that. I can just tell you, this room is hideous. Once the bellhop arrives, they point out the luggage can be placed on the floor, so he throws it onto the bamboo daybed thing. As the ladies start to point out their frustrations with the bait-and-switch of the brochure, they are quickly met with defense and agitation from said bellboy. Oh, this room isn't good enough for you? As Dorothy points out that the room is fine, but not for the $100 they're charging for the night, which is a fair complaint, as that is about 250 bucks in today's money, which is still nothing for a resort suite, so... As they are yelled at about their money concerns, Rose tries to help the bellboy understand. They're sorry. They're just Americans who are trying to learn the metric system, which is the system of measurements used in every other country in the world except Liberia, Myanmar, and the United States. And seeing as we can't even get rid of the Electoral College or get everyone on the same page about science existing, I don't think we'll be changing our measurements anytime soon. Sorry world, feet and inches for life.
2: You know, I know we have to run some errands later today. Don't forget to put three or four liters of petrol in there, okay?
0: Oh yes, and a? I'll drive fourteen kilometers.
2: I hope round trip or not?
0: I don't know. Is that a lot?
2: Mm. Gmail us. Wait,
0: uh, wait. Five k is about three and a half miles,
2: so okay. I'm gonna write down. Add do calculator some math. sounds. <laughs>
0: So if I'm driving 14 kilometers with three meters of petrol uh, and I'm fourteen liters tall, does that make me Canadian? Is that how metric system works?
2: You've done it. And they do hands too. Oh
0: yes, like (laughs) like horses. Like
2: horses. Horses and liters.
0: Strangely, they use hands for measuring their dogs. Horses do? See, this is why we can't have the metric system. (laughs) When Dorothy realizes the AC is out in the room, eternally optimistic Rose points out they don't need it. The ocean breeze coming through their window will be all the air they'll need. That's why it's even more disappointing when she opens the curtains to see they are mere inches away from a brick building. You know, classic island-style architecture. And in addition to that, they have no view of the ocean. Well, no direct view, that is. When the bellboy arrives with even more luggage, they point out the false advertising about the ocean view. The bellhop assures them they don't want a view, for when the revolutionaries capture the imperialistic leaders of the island and put their heads on spikes, it will happen at the beach. So maybe a view isn't for the best. Granted, he was a lot more intense about it. In addition to no view, there's no phone, so Dorothy asked the bellhop to send a manager. A manager, the bellhop hates and considers one of said imperialistic rulers. That's why he'll be the second one shot in the revolution, right after his neighbor who knocked up his sister. After threats of violence and throwings of luggage, it's not surprising the ladies ignore the bellhop's request for a tip when he holds his hand out. Careful, ladies. You don't want to end up on that imperialistic list. A prim and proper Blanche is, of course, the most upset about the situation, blaming the girls for talking her into going there. That's not to say Dorothy and Rose aren't frustrated. Well, Dorothy's frustrated. Rose is busy playing out some upsetting prisoner of war fantasy. It's a bit of an oh boy. Not only for her graphic description of what the revolutionaries would look like, but what they would make her do. Casual sex trafficking talk? This is a family show. Although even with all of that, Dorothy compares the cooking, darning, and forced sexual gratification to Christmas with Stan. Oh boys across the board. Blanche will have no part in their pity party. She's too busy throwing one for herself. Without a C, she'll look terrible, and without a phone, she won't be able to get a date. That is, unless she follows Dorothy's advice, and she does what she normally would, sit at the bar without any undies on. Before Blanche's active bee face can go back to resting, there's a knock and opening of the door. It's the resort's manager, Jacques de Covierre who is being played by one of the most well-known and prevalent character actors in the biz, Stuart Pankin. Besides being our favorite orthotic infomercial salesman, Stuart's acting and voice work has been in everything we've ever watched. Starting with some of our regulars like Benson, Chips, Trapper John, M.D., and Barney Miller, Stuart went on to do Fame, Days of Our Lives, and Family Ties before his first big movie role in the classic sexy thriller Fatal Attraction. From there, he was in Arachnophobia, Night Court, The Kamish, Family Matters, Honey We Shrunk Ourselves, Strip Tease, That's So Raven, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Coco's favorite movie of all time, Congo. Stewart's also known for his voice work, and I'm pretty sure Stewart is responsible for my poor performance in school, as his voice was all over Disney afternoons. Darkwing Duck, Bonkers, Aladdin, not to mention non-Disney like Batman, Angry Beavers, Ariel Monsters, Animaniacs, and as the father dino, Earl Sinclair, on the puppetry nightmare of TGIF, Dinosaurs. There's nothing in here, there's no dinner, there's no vegetables. Dinner ate the vegetables. And then just left like that? Without coffee? (laughs) Well,
1: he's never coming back.
0: Coco, do you remember Stuart in Congo? Amy.
2: Pretty.
1: Yes, you are. This is a talking gorilla, Moira. This gorilla is talking. I know, boy. But this is really happening. This isn't Mr. Ed. I know it's not Mr. Ed.
2: I do. I know the line. And you probably heard it a moment ago when you mentioned it. But I believe it's something like, Martha, this gorilla is talking. And we'll see if that matches up.
0: Is that his only line?
2: He's only in the first scene when, yeah, when the main character is demonstrating Amy the gorilla's ability to communicate with sign language with this Nintendo power glove or whatever she wears. (laughs) It's he and he's talking to someone else who's in the audience. And I think he's, I don't know, supposed to be like the audience surrogate for that scene or something.
0: Interesting.
2: You never see him again. <laughs> he doesn't get his brains bashed in like Tim Curry does. Spoilers! <gasps> it's a classic. You love it. Well, there's like albino freak gorillas at the end that are all mad and like they're mad about their diamonds. And Ernie Hudson is like shooting machine guns. And Laura Linney has a has a some sort of communication device that also is like a laser weapon, and she's <laughs> zapping these gorillas. Just cutting them in half like a like <gasps> lightsaber style. They While, kill gorillas in it? Well, these are not nice gorillas. These um, are for like, they've been bred to be the protectors of this oh, I ancient city of Zinj. And wow, they, they kept people from stealing the diamonds. And then... Um,
0: what you're saying is basically, what does this movie not have? It sounds uh, like I'll it has everything. What
2: it does not have, a hippo attack... Uh, almost dying in lava and a blimp I wait, mean a hot yeah. air balloon
0: wait that's what it doesn't not have that's right
2: <laughs> I'm sold put it and, on the list and one of the best performances by f- absolute legend Delroy Lindo
1: Mr. Homolka huh? mm. stop eating my sesame cake Stop eating
2: my sesame cake. Mm-hmm. Stop eating my sesame cake. <laughs> How intelligent are them?
1: They're smart. They're too damn smart. Watch
0: out! No! Oh, we're
1: getting out of here. What about
2: them? Put them on the endangered species list.
1: From the best-selling novel by the author of Jurassic Park... The
0: myth of the killer ape is true. Congo, where you are the endangered
1: species.
0: Jacques is more than happy to prove their complaints wrong. Just look out the window and crank your neck really far. Look past the old lady getting actively mugged and boom, ocean. It's not like they were promised a good view. And with that, he magically throws the brochure out the window. I wonder how many takes it took to nail that, or if he got it early on and they were super jazzed about it. Did you catch that, Coco? He's like at the door and flings it, and it went whoop right out the window.
2: No, but I feel like that was a a one and done, and they were like, wow, we can move on. Yeah, like he probably That's just incredible. went to
0: toss it, like whatever, and hope that it went out the window, and then it did, and they're like, okay.
2: <laughs> I'd like to think that his career... Blossomed after that. they Someone at NBC sent the dailies over to someone at Disney or whatever to be in, honey, I, we sh- shrunk our pants or whatever it is. And they're like, this guy can, can, can hit marks. He can
0: fling a paper. Man. We're always looking for that.
2: He sounds like a dinosaur.
0: <laughs> Dorothy won't take his excuses. She's gone full Karen and is ready to talk to the manager's manager to straighten everything out. They'll get the room that matches the now part of a crime scene downstairs brochure, or they won't pay. Well, about the money. See, the travel agent convinced Rose to prepay for the trip, which is still a thing. Just ask my bank account about the upcoming Golden Girls cruise. I don't know that the girls can be mad at Rose. They were the ones that trusted her with their money and sent her to an agent by herself. So really, it's kind of their fault. Yes, in this case, I am victim-blaming. Left with no money and no room, the girls have only one option—to stay in the room they're stuck with. Spying something that might make the trip fun, Blanche pops some quarters into the vibrating bed mechanism. It was former Army pilot in World War II John Hugh Tailing who invented the aptly named Magic Fingers Bed Vibration System in 1958— Fun fact, he was actually a salesman for a company that sold a vibrating bed, but the whole system was a pain in the butt. When he realized he could create an additional vibrating component to fit any bed, he hit the jackpot, creating the Magic Fingers device, which would be featured in hotels, homes, and even songs, movies,
2: and shows. Have you ever experienced a a Magic Fingers bed?
0: I haven't experienced, like, a trademark Magic Fingers, but... Uh well, I guess this will sound weird. My parents, being older, uh they went all out to get like the fancy bed, the up and down and the heated and the everything, all the bells and whistles, and it has like a massage component and let me tell you, you have never fallen asleep so fast. Cuz it's not only like just gently shaking you, it also has the white noise component of the motor. And everything just kind of so you're like, and you melt away. Sounds pretty nice. It's really nice, and I'm jealous, and I wouldn't mind having one. Have you?
2: I have not. I'm. I would love to. I would love a, a magic fingers if that still exists.
0: Oh my gosh! Yes. Uh, but
2: also, I would. I would love to try a vibrating bed.
0: Well, let's go.
2: I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't really want to lay on your parents' bed. Oh,
0: no, I meant like to the bed store.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I said, my mom and I, when my dad goes out of town for work and stuff, she doesn't like to be alone. I go have slumber parties and I'm like, oh yeah, hit that massager. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but you don't need to go lay on my parents' bed.
2: <laughs> don't need to, don't want to. <laughs> Wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't. shouldn't.
0: As relaxing as the vibrating bed could have been for the ladies, all hope is lost when the coin is inserted, a buzzer rings, and the bellhop returns to violently stamp the foot of the bed while singing, setting the mood. Singing the patriotic Cuban song of Guadan Oh.
2: Guantanamera. Okay. Guantanamera. Guantanamera.
0: Guantanamera. Oh, you know this song?
2: Guantanamera yeah I've heard it before wow that's cool uh, there's some movie where a character maybe it's a
0: was it this episode of Golden Girls no
2: I feel like it's like it was like an Eddie Murphy character oh no no I think it's um, it is Marlon Wayans it's the beginning of White Chicks I believe <laughs> when they are undercover in a barber shop as like Cuban guys and he's singing Guantanamera that's why I know that song and you're hearing that clip right now <sighs>
0: Well, singing the patriotic Cuban song of Guantanamera is comedian and actor Paul Rodriguez. Known before 2017 as an actor for films like A Million to One, Welcome to America, and a comedy I love but is a heaping pile of oh boys, Rat Race. That was until he started to say things like he agrees with a former orange president's policies, just thinks someone else should say them, or that girls should be more aware. If they go to a hotel room at 3 a.m., the man has expectations. And he even said, am I going to force myself on you? No. Thankfully, I haven't had to. So he's like, a possible rapist? He's also said it's only sexual harassment if the guy is ugly, and if a woman has her cleavage and legs out, she can't be mad when she's whistled at. I'll leave it to the not-edited-for-Hallmark Dorothy to put it best. Go to hell. (laughs) Back in Miami, we're treated to the sound of what seems to be a koto, a traditional stringed instrument of Japan, as opposed to our usual transition music. I like to think they're doing that out of respect to his culture since Mr. Mitsumo and Sophia appear to be eating a sushi dinner in the Japanese manner of sitting on the floor. But it's probably just an oh boy. It's so adorable being a fly on the wall to Sophia's time with Toshiro, which is Japanese for talented and intelligent. It appears he has just played hooky for the day, letting her ride around on his mower, hey getting her dinner, and trying to teach her how to eat with chopsticks. Chopsticks go back as far as the earliest examples of Chinese writing. Bronze chopsticks have been uncovered that are believed to have come from 1200 BC. But the chopsticks don't matter to Sophia, who has no interest in trying sushi once she learns it's made of raw fish. I can say I don't blame her. So, using the trick of she threw one of her chopsticks so Toshiro would go get it, distracting him from the fact that she's actively dumping her sushi into her purse. Relatable.
2: Why do we call them chopsticks? Who called them that, and why do I call them that?
0: Oh, I wonder if there's like uh, the tradition. Well, they're sticks, so that makes sense.
2: Well, okay, so we got we got half of it.
0: We got half of half it. Half
2: of it nailed. Thank you.
0: I wonder. <laughs> you're welcome. In case you couldn't figure that out, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if it's like a translation, maybe.
1: Kua-tzu. They're
0: kuatsu, K-U-A with an accent over it. I Z I,
2: but why do we call them chopsticks here? Why don't we call them kwatsu
0: The English word chopstick may have derived from Chinese pidgin English, in which chop chop meant quickly. Thus, chopsticks would simply mean food sticks, and so they're like fast
2: food sticks. And a mild oh boy. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's like chop chop, mm. which is you know N- not cool. Not you don't do that anymore. Nope. Are you trying to start a petition to change the name of chopsticks
2: to just food sticks? <laughs>
0: just food
2: sticks. Yeah, if it's if there's a racist connotation, we should. That's fair. Change them to just sticks. Food sticks. Food sticks. sticks.
0: Or uh, Katsuketsu. Yeah. We could all learn that. Well, it's interesting. Thank I'm you. not mad about it. Oh, yeah! Sophia then gives us, not really an oh boy, but an oh boy, that's rude to say, when she starts to try and romantically point out the differences between herself and Toshiro, listing off that he likes raw fish and to listen to a piano being tuned. Ma'am, if someone said something like that about spaghetti and accordions, you would have them cursed. But all of that is to say she really likes the guy, even if they do come from totally different backgrounds. Ah, they both think each other are cute. Settling into their peasant life at the hotel, Blanche has started to unpack and shelve her beauty regime supplies in the bathroom's medicine cabinet. A brave move. As part of her routine, she has an apricot scrub, a honey toner, a coconut moisturizer, you know, the basics. For Dorothy, she can only hear the ingredients of a great drink. While apricot, honey, and coconut sound like a good cocktail, it's actually white rum, orange curacao, dark rum, lime juice, or jet, which is an almond-based syrup, that actually make a classic Trader Vic's creation, the Mai Tai. Blanche's concoction is actually closer to an apricot honey gin sour. Looking like three columns from Rome before they lost their color, Blanche is representing the apricot in her scrub with the same colored nightgown and a short-sleeved robe. Silk, of course. Dorothy is in a light purple, light gray with pinstripes and hefty-collar nightgown, and Rose is in her blue with ruffle-trimmed robe. Hoping to turn the trip around, Rose has made an itinerary for the next day. They'll start out with breakfast, then a boat tour, then a Spanish fort tour, then a shipwreck tour. Ending the day, they'll hike up a volcano. A dormant one, of course. This idea is met with a slap across the face by Dorothy. Rose can take a hint, they don't have to go up the volcano, but Dorothy clarifies, there was a mosquito on your face. Rose's big plans finally tell us where they're actually located, and no, there won't be a revolution. They're in the South Florida Keys, because just 40 miles offshore is the wreckage of the Santa Juanita. Leaving the New World packed with treasures of gold and silver, a hurricane took the treasures, the ship, and 147 people just off the Marquesas Keys. Leaving the room to go wash her face in the bathroom, Rose is met with a locked door. When she tries to open it, a male voice from the other side informs her it's occupied. But Rose still being Rose, she doesn't catch on right away what was wrong with that situation. But Dorothy and Blanche have, and they are rightfully concerned that there appears to be a man in their bathroom. Don't worry, Rose assures them. He said it wouldn't be that long unwilling to sit by while someone loots their bathroom, Dorothy takes to the door and pounds away. The only response she gets is that it's gonna take as long as it'll take. Ew. Unfazed by the gross implications, Blanche decides to take the situation into her own hands. Knocking ever so delicately, she inquires as to if the intruder is married. Opening the door, revealing his shirtless shaving cream covered self, is a strange man answering Blanche's question with a no, actually. Using the open door as an opportunity, Dorothy makes her way into the bathroom, asking the now two men just who the hell they are. Why, they're Dwayne and Rick, of course. And following them is Winston Hardwick III. Playing the jerks in the bathroom are Brett Porter, who's Winston, Stephen Lee as Dwayne, and Tom Villard as Rick. Stephen Lee started his career in 1981 on Heart to Heart and ended it in 2010 with Burlesque. In between those gems, he had roles on Remington Steel, a television adaptation of Sophia's least favorite porn, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Dukes of Hazard, Who's the Boss, Heat of the Night, Robocop 2, Night Court, Roseanne, and a Roseanne movie where he played Tom, fittingly. Doogie Howser, Seinfeld, CSI, ER, West Wing, Grey's Anatomy, Bones, Numbers, and Ghost Whisperer. Tom Villard is not only a charmer in this Golden Girls episode, even with that blonde hair situation, but we'll also get to see him and Joe Mama later in the series. Tom and Betty White actually had more than Golden Girls in common thanks to his appearances on shows like The Golden Girls, Chips, Taxi, Baywatch, and his own starring role alongside Matt McCoy, the lawyer from Silicon Valley slash the guy in those commercials riding in a car talking to older folks about insurance and their sitcom We Got It Made. Tom was invited to participate in multiple game shows just like Betty. He was also in films like Grease 2, Heartbreak Ridge, and My Girl. I always thought he had such a charm to him, kind of a Tom Everett Scott of the early 90s. Brett Porter, a.k.a. Winston Hardwick III, a.k.a. Mucho Ducho, had only four roles before landing on The Golden Girls. He didn't have a ton after it before leaving acting, but some of the shows he was on were Tracy Takes On, Murder, She Wrote, Daddy Dearest, The Young and the Restless, Max Headroom, Matlock in the Heat of the Night, He played General Stex in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and of course, La La. Sadly, Brett Porter is the only vacation boy still with us. Stephen Lee passed from a heart attack at just 58 years old in 2014, and Tom Villard passed days before his 41st birthday, succumbing to AIDS related pneumonia. In the early 90s, Tom was one of the first and only out celebrities. He even went on Entertainment Tonight to come out as gay and as someone that was living with HIV. He said he did it to not only ask for help, but to put a beloved face to a disease's name to show he wasn't just a dismissible monster as so many homosexual and AIDS having people were being painted as. Cheers to a gay icon who is not only brave in coming out but putting himself in a position where he lost jobs and friends to make the point of helping others. Just like with the girls costuming you get a sense of what type of guys these are right away. Dwayne shirtless obviously is the laid-back guy that doesn't care. Rick, sitting on the edge of the bathtub, flossing his teeth, giving us early Jim Carrey vibes, is in khakis and a loudly colorful patterned shirt. And Winston III has his cigar in hand and silky smoking robe on. Clearly the leader of the dodos, Winston is the one to break the news to the ladies. What we have here is a shared bathroom situation. Bum, bum, bum. Which has Blanche making a good point. You are strangers and men. Vacation or not, I'm not sharing my bathroom. Okay, maybe it's a half good point, but she's right. They shouldn't have to do that. In all fairness, the guys aren't stoked about it either. Except Rick takes it a bit far, saying it's not like they want to be gargling next to Grandma Moses and the Mosettes. Grandma Moses was a famous painter known for her landscape pieces that looked like they were ready to become puzzles. What's special about her, and makes this joke a mean one, is that she became a world-famous painter with her pieces being shown in museums and selling for millions, which didn't happen until she explored her creative abilities when she was in her 70s. And no, she didn't have backup singers like the Ronettes. Well, the rudeness of the guys has Rose in a tizzy, so she lashes out, calling the rude guys rude comments rude. She's not wrong, though. They are rude, especially when they go on to tell the ladies to scram, almost like they're just taking over the bathroom. Blanche won't stand for it. In fact, she rips that cigar out of pompous Winston's mouth, tells him to kiss her patootie, and tells them that they are the captains now. This is their bathroom, before throwing his cigar in the tub. Patootie has been around since the 1920s as slang for something cute or a booty. It's believed both origins come from potato or sweet potatoes. Potato, patootie, cutie, patootie, toots come from your butt, kiss my patootie. There you go. English. It's a blustery evening at the resort where in the lobby we find the girls stuck in what appears to be some sort of Alice in Wonderland but as an 80s sitcom decor nightmare. Coral walls, blue and white checkered floors, white iron heart-shaped chairs, it all goes well with their meal. It was equally gross. Fed up with how bad things have been, Dorothy suggests they spend the remainder of the evening playing games to decide who gets to finish off the Pepto-Bismol. The ladies look lovely, sitting around, awaiting the sweet release of death. Dorothy in her shimmery teal top and pant, paired nicely with the best in resort wear, a white turtleneck blanche in a black and colorful flowered dress and bright pink blazer and rose in a sexy flowy white pantsuit killing time blanche is horrified when she sees their new nemesis coming down the stairs as the three men approach they start by offering to buy the ladies a drink out of habit blanche thanks them before dorothy yells at her in disgust so she corrects herself no actually we don't want a drink now go away but the guys aren't done They realize just how jarring their appearance must have been, and they apologize, allowing the girls to take them up on that drink offer. Making small talk, Rick asks Dorothy how the vacation has been. Oh, wonderful. I would have to compare it to when it was the Depression, and I needed my wisdom teeth pulled out, and we had to go to a shoemaker to do it. Winston, in blue slacks, a light pink shirt, and tan blazer, has an offer. Let's take my sailboat out for the night. Blanche doesn't hesitate to say yes, and shockingly, neither do Rose or Dorothy. They're so desperate to be away from the resort, they'll take their chances on the water. Kids, don't do this. Adults, don't do this. Does the guy know how to sail? Have they been drinking? Doing drugs? Can you sail that well in the dark of night? Are you planning on robbing, killing, kidnapping us, and throwing us overboard? No, ma'am. Do not do it. I mean, if Dwayne's navy button-up isn't giving any red flags, it's Rick's four-inch-wide horizontal striped shirt of neon yellow and gray. With a plan in place to meet back in the lobby in 45 minutes, the guys and gals start to separate. Not before Dorothy says she needs to go call her mom, which elicits a giggle from Dwayne who can't believe someone Dorothy's age has a mother that's still living. And the girls still want to go sailing with them? Back home, we see yet another dinner Toshiro and Sophia are having together. Ah, Shoshiro, Tosfia, you know, celebrity name. This time, it's veal piccata. Veal piccata is a simple, although horrifying dish. With the few ingredients of capers, sherry, lemon juice, and broth, you can create a delicious stock to pour over the tender baby cow meat you've grilled up. Maybe it's the veal, but Sophia is feeling very open. Saying that Toshiro doesn't bring out the best in her, but the beast. Basically using the metaphor of an old olive tree being dried out and looking sad, but you can still have juicy olives. Sophia is like, Tosh, mama horny, and I want to feed you my olive, you dig? The language barrier is still a bit of an issue. Toshiro didn't catch all of that Sicilian olive plump talk, so Sophia takes a different approach. How about I just teach you some English words? We'll start with kiss. So she puckers up. Just as Toshiro starts to lean in, the phone rings. Calling home, Dorothy has interrupted the romance and is met with the fury only an 80-something horny grandma could produce. Picking up the receiver, Sophia yells, who the hell is this? Before learning it's her daughter calling to check in on her. Faking interest, Sophia gives Dorothy some of the, oh, yeah, how's it going? Great. Okay, good. Bye. So back to the English lesson and the two share a sweet peck on the couch. Well, on their lips. They're on the couch. (laughs) They didn't kiss the couch. Back to the island, we see a frantic Blanche now dressed in a pink top and white pants, you know, night sailing clothes, and she comes running across the sand, life vest on and screaming, Dear Sweet Land! It's clear the sailing did not go as planned. Following just behind her in jeans and a striped shirt is a frazzled rose, asking how long they've been at sea. Catholic Dorothy in jeans and a white shirt tells her in Catholic speak just how long it was. Assuming Dorothy was using a typical five-decade rosary, the gang was at sea for about 40 minutes. With five beads of Hail Marys between each is a My Father prayer, and then there's a chain for the Glory to be to the Father prayer. Each rosary takes about 20 minutes. Coco, do you have any rosary knowledge from your years at Catholic school?
2: Yeah, I um, I did confession and was sentenced to some rosaries a few times. But I was always just making up stuff to confess to. I didn't care. <laughs> like you didn't
0: have anything.
2: I mean, like there was. I mean, well, I was a pretty boring kid, but I just didn't believe in it, and so I was like, I'll just make up something. Do
0: you remember anything that you I lied like, to a priest about?
2: I mean, I well, I feel like priests have done a few more lies than me. <laughs> Not even collectively. Pick a priest, baby. <laughs>
0: Did you ever do the rosary?
2: Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did it. And just you just sit there and do it or not. And I, you I know feel what? like
0: it was good. It would be a good, like, uh, meditation tool
2: if it was used in that way and yeah. not as a punishment. Yeah, that'd oh, be great. Yeah. That'd be really cool if they did it like that. But no, <laughs> no, everything's a slap, and then you get to die. <laughs> Catholicism. Check it out.
0: Gmail us. Yeah. God. Ugh. Behind the ladies are the guys, equally disheveled and happy to be alive. Blanche might be happy to be alive, but not so much that the guys still are. It's clear Winston had no idea what he was doing as he sailed the ladies right into a storm, causing the boat to crash on an island. Perhaps it's that the guys are young and they still have that invincibility young men are prone to, but they don't really understand what Blanche is all worked up about. I mean, it's not like you died. To help them understand, Blanche offers to hit Winston on the head with a coconut before yelling that she hates him, that the day he was conceived is now cursed, and that he's a nitwit. Combining the German word for not, which is nicked, with wit, you get the early 1900s phrase of nitwit meaning someone who lacks wits or smarts. Winston begs to differ. It was because of his sailing skills he was able to keep them alive through such treacherous conditions. Pointing out that his skills consisted of hanging on and screaming for God to take the old ladies isn't exactly a skill Dorothy calls BS. As tempers start to rise, nearly leading to a physical altercation, an unusually vocal Rose stands up, yelling for everyone to shut the hell up. She is in charge, and they're going to listen to her. Why? Because she was a pioneer scout, which is a fake version of Girl Scouts. Most of the time, it feels like Rose couldn't tell the difference between a drinking fountain and a toilet bowl, so it's kind of surprising to hear she can distill water, build a fire, and a rope bridge. All very helpful things in this scenario if only there was someone to talk to about what to do if we were ever in a survival situation.
1: Hi, this is Tom Brown III. I am the founder of Future Nature, which is an outdoor school that teaches people all about the skills our hunter gatherer ancestors used to live off the land uh, in harmony with nature. Uh, I also work for Trackers Earth in Portland, Oregon, where I'm the director of adult programming. So I teach those same skills to adults. And I'm also the founder of T3 Photography. Uh, Nature Photography is another vehicle I use to connect people to nature. So those are the three hat main hats I wear. I I wanted to say that um, and I don't know if I mentioned this in our initial messaging but my mom passed away recently and uh, golden girls was one of her favorite tv shows and i remember you know being a little kid many fond memories of sitting and watching uh golden girls with her so
0: oh Uh, i'm first and foremost so sorry uh, for your loss but that's really beautiful kind of a kismet moment that we our paths crossed a little bit here (laughs) Oh, that's really nice. And that's part of what I love about this show is almost everybody has a story kind of like that of, oh, with my grandma or my auntie or somebody like that. So can you kind of give our listeners a little bit of a background of yourself, maybe how long you've been doing survivalist things?
1: How I got into this. uh, So my father, Tom Brown Jr., he is perhaps the most well-known, is the most well-known person in the world. On uh, you know wilderness survival, ancestral living skills, uh, he started his school in 1978, which is the year I was born. So I grew up uh, immersed, you know, in the skill sets I talked about. I worked with him for quite a while, and then in 2009, I decided it was time to strike out on my own and. So I've been learning these skills for 43 years and I've been teaching them professionally for, I think this is my 21st year. So I literally eat it, drink it, breathe it, sleep it. Uh, it is my passion. You know, my passion is to reconnect as many people as I can to nature to help dispel some of the fear around nature when people have that connection with nature they're much more likely to respect it change the way they live their lives not be so destructive as we we are these days and that's my it's my vision in life as it is my fathers and
0: it's a good one to have Okay, so let's hop into the episode and kind of break down,
1: yeah.
0: um, you know, there's not a ton. It's not like the whole episode is based on them being uh, lost on on what they think is an island out at sea. So kind of walking through that a bit. So it starts out when they first think that they're just cast away and and have to fight to survive until they're found. Right out of the gate, Rose kind of puts herself as a leader. She's like, I have experience. Yeah. I was a Girl Scout. I'm the leader. Is that something that should be done, whether someone's hiking in the forests of the Pacific Northwest or their boat crashes somewhere? Just what are kind of those first really crucial initial steps?
1: No, no matter what environment you're in, uh, the principles are always the same. And I think they actually captured it really well when a modern person gets lost in the woods, uh, most of the time they panic, right? Because we all live in these bubbles of safety and security and comfort. Uh, we have 24 hour access to food. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in this situation where all that's stripped away and you know that fight or flight response takes over. Now, back when we were hunter gatherers, We would use that to like get away from danger or fight off something. But nowadays it tends to lead people into a worse situation. The first thing you do is you, you know, you stop, you know, because every step you take further is one step further from where you knew where you were. You know, you take a deep breath and, you know, the the, the the crucial part is maintaining that positive mental attitude and that I'm going to make it through this. Yeah. So it was really, it was really awesome how Rose just kind of stepped up there. It was like, you go to the top of the cliff. Although that wouldn't have been what I would have done because we all know that water flows downhill. So I would first search kind of the low lying areas because In order for us to maintain our life force in the wilderness, uh, we require four things. Uh, And they're basically in the order of what will kill you the quickest if you don't have it. And that is number one is shelter. We can die in as little as three hours without proper shelter, whether that's shelter from the cold or shelter from the heat. Always remember your clothing is your first line of shelter. So before you go out into nature, you know, we all carry devices in our pocket that can access a 10-day forecast anywhere in the world. You know, Dress for the occasion, bring a few extra layers in case you it's a little colder. After that is water. We can go about three days without water. And as somebody who has tested all of these, uh, I can tell you the most painful experience of my life was uh, in a controlled setting, like dehydrating myself to death. Uh, it is miserable. I, I, I do not wish that agony on anybody. Uh, third on the list is fire, because fire is a multifaceted tool. Uh, for better or worse, fire uh, is perhaps the most important tool humans, and by humans, I'm talking about going back 2 million years, the most important tool we ever learned how to use and it's still part of all of our lives you know so yeah and uh, you know fire also purifies our water you know which is another thing you know we can't just go to any water source we find in the woods and fill our nalgene bottle and drink it and it's you know we might be fine but we may also get uh, giardia or cryptosporidium and one of the best ways to purify water if you don't have a fancy filtration system is to boil it Uh, so and then last on the list is food you know most people can easily go three weeks if not longer without food and you know ironically when you uh you know I have gone out and tracked down missing hikers and missing hunters and you know you always do an exit interview with them and one of the questions you always ask is, you know, when you realize you were lost, what's the first thing you thought of? And everyone says food. I thought about food, and it's the last one. <laughs> you know, that you're going to die much quicker from no shelter or no water. You know, I, I recently did my master class on uh, making it through the first seventy-two hours of a survival situation because one of three things is going to happen in that time period: you're going to get rescued uh, you're going to die from exposure or you're going to die from dehydration. Another really important point that I'll bring up, uh, is anytime you're going to go for go into nature, always, always, always let at least one, if not two people know where you're going, when you plan on coming home and then actually contact that person. That way, if you don't text or call at the appointed time, they can direct search and rescue, whoever, to your approximate last location. Uh, I can't tell you how many skeletons are scattered across the landscape. That uh, had they done that one simple thing, they'd still be alive today. But you know, the main thing is to not panic. Uh, you know, I've seen people panic, drop their backpack full of food, clothes, and shelter because they think it's weighing them down. Or you know, run right off of cliffs, break, you know, run into trees, and you know, in that panic, that fight or flight mindset, we go from having this logically uh, wonderful, logically thinking brain to lizard brain, uh, and it doesn't doesn't serve us well. So yeah, you gotta you gotta find something to to live for, you know, to fight for. Uh,
0: I know the lizard brain well. I worked in mental health for a long time with kids, and we'd always say, oh you flipped your lid and now your lizard brain is going. So I know exactly what that is. Um, so that's a great point. So the girls kind of, uh, from what you're saying is that them sitting down and getting a fire going, that was a good start, but they also split up. They sent the guys to go look for the water. Is that ever something that should be part of, um, you know, trying to survive those, those hours while you wait to get rescued?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, there could be times where it isn't, you know, if it's negative 30, you're going to want all those people together doing a big cuddle puddle to, to conserve your your heat. Generally the advice was good. I probably wouldn't have disassembled the boat to burn. I probably would have looked for other stuff to burn and maybe waited till daylight to see how bad the boat was messed up. That was my same burning. first thought. <laughs> I was
0: like, wait a minute, that's currently your only mode of transportation. Hold on now.
1: Yeah. And there was other wood. I you know, you could see, you know, even though they were obviously on a set, but you right. know, there was there was obviously other other fu- other fuel sources for fire and yeah, when you have that group, it makes it so much easier because when you're by yourself and you have to fulfill all those roles, even, you know, the, the, the most experienced of us can, can struggle even in the most ideal of, uh, of, of uh, conditions, you know. That list I talked about shelter, water, fire, food that list can be fluid depending on a lot of things, depending on what you have with you, what time of year it is. You know, they're obviously on a tropical island. So I'm not going to be so concerned with building a shelter that's going to keep me warm. I might during the day build something. To keep out of the sun. So then, in that heat, my main concern is most likely going to be water, you know, and then obviously fire to cook our food. So, you know, if we eat raw food, we could get sick from that. Not only that, when we cook our food, it predigests it and gives us more available energy. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, purifying our water. You, you can actually take a coconut shell and fill it with water and stick it in the fire. And even though if you were to stick it in the fire without water, it would burn to a crisp, it will actually boil water. You can boil water in a paper cup in a fire because uh, the water keeps it from from actually burning. It's pretty cool.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. You had said early on uh, in your introduction that a big passion of yours is making sure people don't have a fear of nature so that if they do end up in that situation, you know, I'm a casual hiker and a casual camper and I grew up in Portland, you know, so I've, I've been out in nature a bit, but I'm sure if, if that moment was to happen, that of course, you know, that panic is, is there. What are some things that you try to either teach people or tips you have to make it so people aren't scared of nature so that if they are just on that casual hike and something goes wrong, it helps to keep that from happening.
1: So number one is to always, anytime you're going to go into nature, carry a few small, simple items with you. Number one is obviously dressing properly. Like I said, uh, you know, looking at that weather forecast, making sure you have proper clothing Uh, Then, you know, carrying things like a a knife, uh, a a couple of Bic lighters, um, a small first aid kit, those silver uh, survival blankets, uh, you know, some rope. You know, I know how to make fire 12 different ways by essentially rubbing two sticks together. But I always have at least six Bic lighters between my truck and my backpack and not my person. Uh, because once again, conservation of energy is going to be crucial in any survival situation. So, you know, you want to you want to try to conserve that energy wherever possible. And as far as like the the, the fear of nature, you know, the, one thing, one, one bane of my existence over the last about 15 years has been all of these reality shows. And they perpetuate that fear, you know, man versus wild, naked and afraid. You know, nature is not something to be feared or fought against. If you try to fight nature, you'll you will lose every time. Instead, you need to learn how to listen to and pay attention to nature. Uh, if you spend enough time with it, you know, just by listening to the birds, you can tell if there's a storm coming, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, by doing some simple research, you can learn a little bit about different edible plant families and common characteristics of those plant families all over the world. You know, for instance, if I find a plant in the woods and it's got a square stalk, I automatically know it's in the mint family and those those are, you know, generally edible. You know, just learning, you know, the more we know, the less fear there is. And then the other thing I tell people to do, I call it the what ifs, you know. You're laying in bed at night, you can't fall asleep. Think, you know, what if the next time I go out hiking, I break my ankle. You know, what do I do? or i lose my backpack what what would i do and really try to get yourself in that mindset and by simply you know running those scenarios uh, you know then maybe making lists of things and you know to research uh that's going to give you more confidence you know we've all heard the saying survival of the fittest right making it through a wilderness survival situation really has nothing to do with how strong you are having that positive mental attitude um you know doing some pre preparation doing some research you know it's uh and the more time you spend in nature the more plants you learn about the more animals you learn about all of a sudden they go from being these things that are just out there to your friends when you realize how intricate this this web of nature is that we are a part of we we seem to think we rule the web that we're the spider on the web when uh that is not the case at all Uh, we are just one species in a in a circle of approximately nine million others um we just seem to think that we you know have lord and dominion over all of them And I think we can all see, uh, you know, what that attitude has wrought upon the world and not just nature, but against our fellow humans, you know, Mm -hmm. the sooner we all realize that no matter what we look like, the color of our skin, where we're from, we are all one animal, we're all one species. And the sooner we can work together, we can start to repair some of the damage that, We've we've uh, caused each other, and, and in turn, we can start to repair some of the damage that we've we've done to the earth.
0: That same exact thing as you were explaining about you know nature being unknown and therefore it's scary, and so we you know yep. want to attack or defend ourselves. And in my brain, I was thinking. Mm-hmm you know, someone with a different religion, someone with a different skin color, it's yeah. all that same, uh, the ignorance leading to defense. Yeah. And I also like how you said about getting to know nature. I saw on your Instagram, uh, which we'll be sharing as well. You had a beautiful photo of, uh, I believe I'm not a hunt or wild animal person. So I apologize. I believe it was mm-hmm. a, a buck and you said you've been yeah. following it for like yeah. two years or something. I just think that's yeah. so amazing because. For so many people that aren't in that all the time, it's like, oh, there are some deer running by. Mm-hmm. And it's for someone like you yeah. that really knows it. It's like, oh, actually, I know that guy. We go way back. Yeah. And here's his whole. So it's just really um inspiring to know that nature, which does seem uh overwhelming at times, can be uh we can we can join with it and we can just ride along down the river with it and uh and experience yeah. all that beauty. Obviously, this yeah. is. Not just in fun, but kind of uh, examining how they presented it, how accurate or not accurate, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that's why I do the show that I do is to say, here's this TV show from so long ago that not only has the emotional connection, as we discussed, but also they touch on things that still matter to this day. Mm-hmm. such as this and, and reconnecting with nature and being safe about it. So we will make sure we, we've got all that for everybody to go check out so they can learn all the details on how to survive in that situation.
1: Definitely. And, and through through my website, if uh, any, any of you listening to this ever have a question about anything nature related, I am always open for questions. You can contact me through the contact form. I'll be happy to answer your questions, set up a class for you if you want. Uh, I, can, I can pretty much do it all. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to, love to hear from you. And, you know, no, one other thing I would say about that specific episode is, you know, Rose often just gets like picked on and it was just great to see her be like, no, this is how we're doing it. And, yeah, there's something you know, very
0: jarring to her yeah. going, shut the hell up. And you're like,
1: whoa, yeah. OK.
0: <laughs> You've taken control of the situation. All right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you want to make sure that, you know, and then there's also the, the issue which I've run into, you know, the, where the wrong person tries to take control because of, uh, and it's usually men, unfortunately.
0: It's amazing what the ego can do, right? Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tom. That's some really great information.
2: I learned a few hot tips during that interview. What it was really tip great. did you like? My favorite was about boiling water in a paper cup. Yes. I don't have access to a coconut usually, but that you could do that to purify it. I was it.
0: really surprised at that. I had no idea. Yeah. That, that's a good one. I feel like that might maybe someday come in handy.
2: And a personal one for me... Something I've been trying to do, but I can't, is to have a lot of big lighters near me,
0: mm-hmm. but I
2: just shed them and they disappear.
0: It's true. I've never seen anything like it.
2: And also letting people know where you are. Oh, God, always. going to be. I learned that stuff long. from yeah.
0: uh, I Shouldn't Be Alive. Mm-hmm.
2: That's right. Me too. The,
0: even if you don't have anyone, you leave a note or something so that somebody knows where you've gone. Speaking with such authority, there are no arguments about Rose's self assigned leadership or her plans. They're gonna break the boat apart for firewood They're gonna break the boat apart for firewood, and the guys are following the coastline to look for a waterfall. Rose is so authoritative that when Blanche asks Dorothy if they should be following her orders, the normally powerful and even aggressive Dorothy simply shushes her, scared that they'll get in trouble for talking. Amazingly, the girls were able to get a fire started. As they sit around it, they can't help but wonder about the guys who have now been gone for over four hours. They must be looking for containers to hold water or maybe even sat down to rest. Or as Rose suggests, they've been mauled by wild animals. Something that could have likely happened in such terrain. Another probability that they're all going to die. There's no search party and they don't even know their own location. Blanche won't hear it. We're all just tired, hungry, and thirsty. Speaking of, they ask Rose to show them how to make seawater drinkable. When she hesitates, they worry that she can't actually do it. Oh, it's not that she can't. She can do it. She just needs some tubing, a special pot, and cheesecloth. You know, a useless piece of skill at this point. Feeling the pressure of having been the leader that has now disappointed her followers, Rose passes the crown to Dorothy, whose first order of business is to kick Rose out of her kingdom. This sends Rose into an emotional spiral. They're going to die, and she has secrets, like when she accidentally found and then not so accidentally read Blanche's diary. The reason Blanche's diary reads like a Sidney Sheldon novel is because he was known for romantic thrillers like Rage of Angels, Master of the Game, and Other Side of Midnight. His books have sold more than 300 million copies, making him one of the top-selling fiction authors ever. And all of that was after he turned 50. Before exploring a writing career later in life, he had worked on Broadway and films before really striking gold in television, creating and writing all of the episodes for The Patty Duke Show before creating I Dream of Jeannie and Heart to Heart. Rose isn't the only one with a secret. Blanche slept with Rose's cross-eyed cousin, oh boy, Nolan, who had visited from Ohio. But that's no secret. Nolan told Rose and even said Blanche was bad in bed. Well, to save Blanche from the humiliation, Dorothy steps in. She has the same secret. She, too, slept with Nolan. And I love her delivery here. Overall, this episode is very sitcom and doesn't have a lot of pivotal moments. But Dorothy, is the leader, oh, chef's kiss. In the midst of all of the chaos of the night, she firmly, as only a leader can do, places the blame of being a bad lover on Nolan. Changing from secrets to you have to tell the truth, Blanche asked Dorothy why she told a friend of her she got her tubes tied, which is weird to tell a friend but seems also kind of weird to be mad about, especially since she heard her wrong and Dorothy had said she bought a tube top. And while Blanche doesn't fully confess to having had her tubes tied, she does say it would have been around the time that she, Dorothy, had had her nose done. But Dorothy isn't the one that got the rhinoplasty, that was Rose a secret Dorothy was supposed to keep. Fairly enough, Rose didn't want to tell Blanche about the nose job because she's so critical about all of those types of things. To prove her wrong, Blanche of course asks about the price right away, and in response to the $700 says, Oh boy, she was gypped, which we've talked about before. Gipped is an oh boy. We don't say that anymore. And plastic surgery has come a long way. The technology is growing about as fast as the price. While Rose's surgery was only $2,300 in today's money, the average nose job falls around $9,000, $3,000 being on the far low end. This response from Blanche causes Dorothy to change the game from ask a question to just flat out tell your friends what you don't like about them. Starting with Blanche, it's that she's so critical. For Blanche, it's that Dorothy is loud and overbearing. For Rose, it's that Blanche and Dorothy are always bossing her around, which of course is met with a synchronized, oh, shut up, Rose. It only takes a few seconds for them to all apologize and share their love with a hug. Rose is so overcome with emotion, she has to let it out, so she starts singing one of the best-known jingles of all time. Wanting to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony is an idea that was presented by Coca-Cola in 1971, after jingle writers rewrote the words to a British hit called True Love and Apple Pie, sung by Susan Shirley. They created one of the most successful ad campaigns, well, ever. The song is 50 years old, and most people have at least heard of it. The song was so popular when the commercial, featuring a group of singers that were put together by an ad agency to look all hippy-dippy while scampering over the hills, people would actually call radio stations to request it, leading to another group being hired to record a full version that actually charted. And that whole idea seems kind of, well, unimaginable. I just can't even picture myself calling the radio station being like, I'm obsessed with this commercial. Please have writers make more verses so it can be on the radio. Thanks. As the ladies hug and sing, they are soon accompanied by the booming voices of the guys who have made it back to the fire. They're chipper and carrying cocktails. What is going on? When Rose sent them to where she thought a waterfall would be, it turned out she was right. It was a waterfall that led into a pool in the back of the Hyatt Regency. They're still on their island from before, and they're only a half a mile from their new, not-disgusting hotel. Making up for being jerks, the guys even booked the ladies a room. Although they seem a little tipsy, so I don't think that entire four hours was just in their searching time. As they start to leave the beach, Blanche points out, Hey, let's keep all of our secrets secret, huh? Rose is used to that from Scout's days, when they would have to make a blood oath, which is no longer done because we're not idiots. This is, of course, met with a, oh, shut up, Rose. The last two years has reminded us just how much we love and need vacations. Staying home and relaxing or taking the trip of your life, they're all wonderful times for resting and appreciating our surroundings. Sure, we'd like to get our money's worth, but what's important is who you're with. Making the best of a rough situation can lead to a funnier, more outlandish time than anything you would have experienced if everything had gone smoothly. So, once it's safe, take those vacations and make those memories, even if it's only as glamorous as putting up a tent in your own backyard. Also, if you've got a crush on someone, tell them. Who knows? You might end up making out after eating sushi. For more information on how to get back to respect and survive in nature, please visit TomBrown3.com, that's the number three, or follow his Instagram at Tom underscore Brown, the number three. A big thanks to Tom for taking his time to speak with us and to share his wealth of knowledge. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we deal with kinophobia in joust between friends. Behind her comes a scurrying Sophia in khakis, a floral blouse, and light plink. Behind her comes a scurrying Sophia in khakis, a floral blouse, and a light plink. plink cardigan. Behind her comes a scurrying Sophia in khakis, a floral blouse, and a light plink. Oh my god. Light pink
2: cardigan. Light pink cardigan. Apples and plums, <laughs> players and phlegms.
0: Say it. Say it. Apples and plums and players and phlegms. Yeah, there you go. Apples You're... and plums and players and phlegms. Yes. A floral blouse and a light pink cardigan. There we are. There we are. <laughs> you hit it. Evening out the pressure in our inner ear. Sorry. <coughs> Never missing an opportunity, Sophia claims that in order for Blanche to look her best, she will have
2: to have packed a tight butt. tall ta. <laughs> they say, hey, Coco Beanbutt, get over here and fart for us.
0: But as we learn in the future, at least one of the girls has a nearly paralyzing fear of fa- fang.
2: Did I answer the question? Yeah. What was it? Jesus. <laughs> the name's Duncan Funk.
0: <laughs> for when the revolutionists capture the imperialist imperialistic. For when the revolutionists capture the imperial... Oh, my God.
2: It's just utter chaos. (laughs) Uh, Utter chaos is my uh, cow-based horror film.
0: Your ten-handed cow? That's right. Not handed, but ten hands.
2: Both. Very tall. (laughs) Very handed. Many appendages, (laughs) fingers, and whatnot. (laughs) Ew, a hooved finger?
0: I was going to say a fingered cow. Uh,
2: I season wasn't season. gonna say that.
0: <laughs> okay. No, I. And it did come rubber with rubber sheets. <laughs> no, not like that. My mom listens to this. Stop it, you. Oh, that's bad. That's my upset voice.
2: <laughs> I know. I don't like that. I'm familiar. <laughs>
0: Back in Miami, we're treated to the sound of what sound?
2: Uh, <sighs> look over there, Alicia, Coco. Why do why do we call? Co- How did I mess that up? You Taco, know what? Taco enchilada, um,
0: yakisoba, Winston in blue sat sacks. <laughs> it's clear the sailing has not go as the. Wow. A ding dong. Also, if you've got a crush on something, on something. (laughs) Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.